0: Hi, this is Justin Hibbert, worship pastor of New Hope Chapel. Thanks for tuning in to our podcast. Unfortunately, in this sermon, part four of our Joshua series, we ran into some technical difficulties. You'll notice that the audio is rather scratchy. We do apologize for this, but if you would like to listen, well, I know that the Lord will really speak to you as much as he spoke to me about this important lesson regarding the commander that visits Joshua. Yeah. Thank you for listening to New Hope Chapel's podcast. New Hope Chapel is located in Arnold, Maryland. You can find us on the web at www.newhopechapel.org. Now, here's Justin Hibbert with today's message. Well, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Joshua chapter 5. We'll start with verse 13, as we continue our six-week series on Triumph and Transition, a story of Joshua, as we experience a time of transition ourselves, as Gary has moved to California and is pastoring there, and we're wondering what the Lord has for us. And if, any, if yesterday was any indication of what God has for us, I'm really excited about uh, the days that are ahead. If you recall, in Joshua 1, we talked about God's calling of Joshua to be the next leader of Israel. We also, in Joshua chapter 2, talked about Rahab. Last week, we studied Joshua 3, 4, and 5, and how Joshua led the people of Israel across the Jordan River, and how the Jordan was dried up when the priest stepped foot with the Ark of the Covenant in hand. And then we talked about how they set up a monument to remind them of what had happened, the 12 stones from the Jordan River, to remind them that God had done this miraculous thing and led them into the Promised Land. Then they went to Gilgal and were circumcised there, a sign that they will follow the Lord no matter how painful. And then the third thing that they did was that they celebrated uh, Passover. That Passover was first celebrated to mark the end of their time of slavery in Egypt, and now it was marking the beginning of their time as free people in the new land. And today we're going to take a look at Joshua 5.13, and we'll go to chapter 6.5. When Joshua was near the town of Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a sword in hand. Joshua went up to him and demanded, Are you friend or foe? Neither one, he replied. I am the commander of the Lord's army. At this, Joshua fell with his face to the ground in reverence. I am at your command, Joshua said. What do you want your servant to do? The commander of the Lord's army replied, Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did as he was told. Now the gates of Jericho were tightly shut because the people were afraid of the Israelites. No one was allowed to go out or in, but the Lord said to Joshua, I've given you Jericho, its king, and all its strong warriors. You and your fighting men should march around the town once a day for six days. Seven priests will walk ahead of the ark, each carrying a ram's horn. On the seventh day you are to march around the town seven times, with the priests blowing the horns. When you hear the priests give one long blast on the ram's horns, have all the people shout as loud as they can. Then the walls of the town will collapse, and the people can charge straight into the town. <laughs> Makes Bible reading really exciting, doesn't it? And also very dizzying. Anyways, <laughs> Joshua is overlooking Jericho. It's a short distance away. They were in Gilgal, which is about 10 miles north of Jericho, right there on the Jordan River. And uh, jo- imagine Joshua was just standing there thinking about, okay, here's a fortified city. How are we going to attack? Joshua was a skilled man in, the, in, in, in warfare. He was a spy a long time ago for Moses. He served as Moses' aide. Certainly, he went on a number of uh, military missions and campaigns under Moses' leadership. And now here he is taking the lead and wondering, how am I going to take this fortified city? He knows the people inside are afraid of him. He knows that they're melting in fear. He knows that they outnumber him. But the question is, how are they going to overcome? And just as he is standing there, a, mirror, a man appears before him. And, and he's got a drawn sword. Not exactly a friendly disposition, right? He's got his, he's got his loaded weapon, and it's pulled out, and he's, and he's taking aim. And Joshua says, are you a friend, or foe? are you for me, or are you against me? I I love Joshua's faith here, his courage, because he knows that the Lord has given him this land. Three promises God gave to Joshua in Joshua chapter 1. He said, first of all, he said that no one, every place that you step foot will be yours. Number two, that no one will be able to stand up against you. And number three, I'll always be with you. So Joshua's probably thinking to himself, all right, you're either for me or you're against me. And if you're for me, get in my ranks. And if you're against me, watch out. (laughs) Right? Right? And then I, I, love, I love the response. He says, I'm neither. And he says, I'm the commander of the Lord's army. And at that, Joshua fell down. It reminds me of a story I heard once about a battleship that was cruising off the coast of Maine. And the, and the captain of the battleship was standing there on the bridge, and his first mate said to him, he said, there's a light in the distance. And the captain said, signal to that ship and tell them to turn 10 degrees to the east and or to the west. And so he did, and he signaled to him, and a, a response came. And the first mate said to the captain, he said, he wants you to turn 10 degrees to the west. And he said, uh, no. And he said, tell him that I am a captain. So he signals, this is a captain. And, and, the, and the signal came back that said, this is a, is a third-class seaman. And now the captain's really angry. Who's this guy telling me to turn my boat? And he says, we're a battleship. And the next flash came back, we're a lighthouse. <laughs> so, <laughs> it, reminds me, it reminds me of that. This guy is like, no, 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 you got it all wrong, Joshua. I'm the commander. And Joshua falls down on his face and, and he says, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord, tell me what it is. I'm your servant. Tell me what you want me to do. Well, I think the real question that we want to know here, one of the first questions is who is this guy standing before Joshua with a drawn sword? standing between Joshua and Jericho. Who is this guy? Well, we, we, first of all, we know that it's a deity of sorts, a, a, a being, a heavenly being, perhaps. And the reason that we know that is because he is the ca- commander of the Lord's army. And no man, no human being is the commander of the Lord's army. I guess the question is, is this an angel or is it God himself? Well, let's look at what he says to Joshua. He says, take off your sandals, you're standing on holy ground. We've heard that before, haven't we? In Exodus chapter 3, Moses sees this burning bush, and it's not getting consumed. And he goes and he, goes and he says, I'm going to see what's up with this bush. And he gets closer and closer, and then the bush starts talking to him and says, don't come any closer. You're standing on holy ground. Take off your shoes. And it's the Lord speaking through Moses in the, in the burning bush. So it seems to be the same type of language, the same message that's here. Notice Joshua, Joshua's responses. Joshua falls down on his face in reverence. The other reason why I don't think this is an angel is because a similar thing happens in Revelation chapter 20, 22, sorry, where John, who is being shown the glory of heaven, is led by the angel, and the angel's showing him all of these things. And overwhelmed, John falls down on his face and worships the angel. And the angel says, wait a second. He says, stop. He says, you don't worship anyone but the Lord. Why? Because he knows that what John is doing is participating in some sort of idolatry and worshiping something other than the Lord. And secondly, the angel knows knows there's a danger in it for himself, that he remembers the story of Lucifer, the archangel of God, who wanted the praise and glory for himself. And what did God do? Well, he punished him. He expelled him out of heaven along with a number of other angels. So he knows the danger of receiving the praise of man. So he says, get up. But in this case, we don't see this being telling Joshua to get up. In fact, we see something else. We see Joshua say, I am your servant. You tell me what to do. It seems to me that this being standing before Joshua is actually the Lord. Actually the Lord visiting with Joshua. Furthermore, in chapter 6, take a look at what it says. You know, these chapters that we have. They're arbitrary in some means. You know, they're there for our reference and for finding things easily. But oftentimes what happens is we read the end of the chapter and we stop. And we forget about what we've read and we come back the next day and it's like there's a whole new scene happening. It's like scene six. Well, this is not scene six. This is a continuation. We're not told that there's any change in scenery. But what does it say in, in, in Joshua chapter six? It says, then, It says, then the Lord said to Joshua, Then the Lord said to Joshua, see, I have delivered Jericho into your hands. In other words, what I believe is happening here is that this being stood before Joshua, says you're standing on holy ground, take off your sandals. He gets Joshua's attention and then he gives him war plans. This is the same being, I believe, talking to Joshua here in chapter 6 that's talking to Joshua at the end of chapter 5. There's no reason to think otherwise. I, don't, I, I wouldn't think otherwise. That Joshua chapter 6 is a continuation of this. It's not like this being just came to Joshua and said, take off your sandals, and then he peaced out. No, I don't think that's what happened. I think he said, hey, now that I've got your attention, let me tell you what's going on. It seems to set the scene for that. But you might be thinking, how is it that God can appear face to face with Joshua? If you remember Exodus chapter 33, Moses wanted to see God's face. And he said, God, let me see your face. And what did God say to him? God says, you can't see my face and live. Nobody can see my face and live. My my brilliance, my glory, my majesty is just too much for your mortal eyes and sinful hearts to handle. It'll kill you. You can't live by seeing my face. And he says, I'll tell you what, Moses, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to hide you in the cliff of a mountain, and I'll hide you with my hand, and I'm going to pass by you. And, and, I, and at the right moment, I'll lift my hand, and you'll see my glory. You'll see my back, but my face you cannot see. So how is it that this person is actually God, if it, and, and, and seeing, showing himself to Joshua face to face, if we know that we can't see God's face and still live to talk about it? Well, I think there's, there's a couple of stories that happened before this that might give us some insight. One of them is in Genesis chapter 18, where Abraham encounters three visitors. In Genesis chapter 18, let me just pull that up here for a second. It says in verse 1, it says, The Lord appeared to Abraham near the great trees of Mamre while he was sitting at the entrance of his tent in the heat of the day. And then it says, Abraham looked up and saw three men standing nearby. You know, and throughout this passage in Genesis chapter 18, there, Abraham is constantly talking to the Lord, right? And then it tells us that two of the visitors went down to Sodom and Gomorrah to save, to rescue Lot and his family, also to investigate what was happening. Meanwhile, in in verse 18, 16, He says, when the men got up to leave, they looked down towards Sodom, and Abraham walked along with them to see them on their way. Then the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? And Abraham and the Lord talk about Sodom and Gomorrah, and Abraham tries to negotiate with the Lord to save Sodom and Gomorrah. And then in Genesis chapter 19, we're told that the two men, the two angels, go into Sodom and Gomorrah, where they're, they're almost sodomized, that's where we get that word, and, but that, that they eventually rescue Lot and his family. So who is this person visiting with, with Abraham? Well, this is the Lord. And two angels are visiting with Abraham, apparently in human form. Then, if we look, if we look in Genesis chapter 32, we have the story about uh, Jacob wrestling with uh, just a random guy, a random stranger. I always find this kind of awkward. Like, how did that go? You know, he's waiting for Esau. He's waiting to meet Esau. And the night before he's going to meet Esau, some guy comes up to him. And what, you want to wrestle? Like, (laughs) I've got some spare time. Why not? You know, like, I don't know if this was some sort of primitive handshake, I guess. I don't know. But nonetheless, maybe he just attacked him from the back. And he just starts, and they just start wrestling. And they wrestle all night long. And they wrestle and they wrestle. And, 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 and And the man touches Jacob's hip. And, and then and Jacob's still not letting go, and it's daybreak, and man says, "Let me go." And Jacob says, "No way, not until you bless me." And he says, "What's your name?" He says, Jacob?" He says, "No, your name now is Israel." Well, after the stranger leaves, what does Jacob say? He says, "I'm going to call this place Peniel because I have seen the Lord face to face and have lived to tell about it. What is Jacob saying? He's saying that the man that he wrestled with was actually the Lord. So isn't it possible that this particular being here with the drawn sword standing before Joshua is the Lord himself? And here's what I think. I think it's the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, before his incarnation 1,300 years later. Well, you say, well, how can that be? How could Jesus appear in human form when he has yet to be born of Mary in the town of Bethlehem in Judea? How is that possible? Well, we know Jesus did not just exist at that moment. He has always been existing. And we could talk about why the incarnation at that moment in time through Mary is very important and significant and an answer to prophecy and a fulfillment of prophecy, but that's for another day. We know that Jesus has always existed. In fact, in John chapter 1, verse 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It was with him in the beginning. By him all things were made, and nothing that had been made had been made without him. In him is life, and that life is the light of men. We know that, right? So God has always existed. Jesus has always existed. He was the Word made flesh, and that Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. He created with God. In fact, the word Elohim that's used in Genesis chapter 1 is a plural word. Yet yet we know that God is also singular. It's it's that difficult concept of the Trinity, that God is one. Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, and with all your strength. You know what I think is that, that this incarnation is not the first time Jesus had shed his glory so that he could meet with his people face to face in a very unique way. I think he was accustomed to it. He had done it on a number of occasions. He did it with Abraham. He did it with, uh, with Jacob. He does it here with Joshua. There's a great passage uh, that we find in John where Jesus is interacting with the Pharisees. And the Pharisees pull out the card that says, Abraham's our father. And Jesus says, oh yeah, I know Abraham. He rejoices to see my day. And they said, how do you know our father Abraham? You're not even 50 years old, my man. He said, verily, verily, understand, before Abraham was, I am. So he has always existed. He knew Abraham. Right now, at that point, they were incensed. And they were like, what is this guy talking about? He's saying that he is God, that he's always existed, that he was there with Abraham. How is that possible? Well, in in Matthew chapter 17, also, we find it in Mark and Luke. We're told of a great event where Jesus meets with Moses and Elijah on top of a mount. And there the disciples witness the glory of God being put on, on Jesus like new. And, and, and they're just, they're overcome by the majesty of the moment where God is revealing his glory to Jesus. And in fact, John writes about it in John 1, 14. And he says this, he says, he says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. So he says that, that you know, the, that God made himself flesh and dwelt among us, like a common man, but yet fully God, yet shed his glory so that we could see his face and live. But then there were this, there was this moment when we beheld the glory of God and we lived to tell about it. We've seen the glory of God through Jesus. So here he is. Jesus meeting with Joshua. I love it. It's the, it's the meeting of the Yeshua's, right? Jesus' name in Hebrew is Yeshua. Joshua's name in Hebrew is Yeshua. It just happens to be that we translate them slightly different. But they both mean God saves. And here, here these two are meeting. And I think Jesus was fond of Joshua. We talked about the Jordan River and its significant, significance in Jesus' ministry last week. And also in the significance of Joshua's mission. But I think the real question is, why does Jesus meet with Joshua? What is the purpose? Why didn't God just talk to Joshua like he did at other times? Why not talk to him through the burning bush or in some other uh, miraculous way? Why meet with Joshua face to face? And I think in number one, it's to fulfill the promise to Joshua in Joshua 1 and assure him that he is there with them. Remember, Joshua knew Moses. Joshua was Moses' aide. Certainly, he heard about the burning bush. He was there at Mount Sinai when, when Moses went up to the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments and experience the glory of God. He knew about the tent of meeting, where, where Moses would meet with God, and he would come out and just radiate. His face was glowing, and he would have to put on a veil because it was just too bright. I should put on a side note that my face is radiating from the sun, not from spending time with the Lord today. <laughs> Someone pointed that out. And it's also not makeup for the cameras either. Let's just be clear. But he knew that. And so I think that Joshua was saying, hey, God, you know, you've, you've, you've confirmed this mission in me that I'm to lead Israel. The people of Israel um, confirmed it. Um, he says also, he says, the people of Israel confirmed it. You know, uh, Moses laid hands on me. I know that I'm supposed to do this work. But I think Joshua wondered, hey, is God going to lay his hand on me like he did with Moses? Is he going to perform the great miracles through me like he did Moses? And then we see what he does at the, at the Jordan River, and then later on what will happen in Jericho. And I think those are confirmations of that. But I think Joshua also wanted to know, God, are you going to reveal yourself to me like you did with Moses? Am I going to have that relationship with you? Can I have that relationship with you that Moses had where he saw your glory, where he experienced you in, in, in such a miraculous way? And I think God is saying, yeah, Absolutely but I'm going to do something better. I'm going to do something different. I'm going to shed my glory and show myself to you face to what face. What a miraculous, what an awesome event that must have been. But a second reason why I think that, that Jesus reveals himself to Joshua this way is to ensure that Joshua understands that this was God's mission and not Joshua's. You know, what does he say? He says, are you for me or against me? He sends a little bit of cockiness in that. And he says, neither. You, you got it all wrong. The question is, are you going to do it my way? Or are you going to do it your way? And he sets up that because he's about to tell him this, this crazy war plan. I, wanna, I want you guys to march around. You guys ever see the Veggie Tales of the Joshua and the Big Wall? Where they're <laughs> marching around and, and the people on top of the, uh, of the uh, wall are, are uh, um, they're taunting them and they're throwing slushies at them and everything. <laughs> and you just get this. I just think of the story and uh, the... the the image in Monty Python uh, yeah, Monty Python and the Holy Grail where the French guys are up there and they're like, of course we're French, why else would we have this outrageous accent? And they're taunting the people down below, and, you know, down below the wall. I just get this image that this must have been the most ludicrous looking war march, but yet here's this here's this army that over, they lapped over and over again uh, around the city of Jericho and they, they, they were outnumbered in Jericho, but they probably looked down and they're like, what in the world is going on, you know? So... Uh, But he's going to say, hey, are you going to do it my way or are you going to do it your way? It's not about you. This mission isn't about you. When you're gone, when you're long gone, this mission will still exist. So I need you, Joshua, to do things my way, not to do things your way. I need this to be about me. Third thing that he does is I think he gives him a heavenly vision. In Joshua chapter 6, we read that he says, see the land that I'm giving you. See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands, along with its king and its fighting men. See it. Don't see Jericho like it is. See it like it's going to be. Don't see Jericho like uh, with his big fortress and these giants inside. Don't see the promised land in this way. See it like I am giving it to you. Have a heavenly vision. It reminds me of the story in 2 Kings 6, where Elisha says to the Lord, Lord, we're outnumbered. How in the world are we going to take on this army? And he says to him, see the army before you. And when Elisha's eyes are open, he sees a heavenly host, a heavenly army, armed on chariots, marching out before them. And he thinks, wow, we can take this. I think Joshua at that moment, I, I got to say, I think he might have seen something of a heavenly vision. Maybe chariots and angels are already chiseling at those walls. Who knows? But he knew at that moment, that God was going to do something miraculous and that it was not going to be Joshua that brought those walls down. It was going to be the Lord. Lastly, I think that uh, that Jesus meets with Joshua here to give Joshua war plans. Now, that's a tough thing to say because, you know, I think a lot of us, we make this discrepancy between the Jesus of the Old Testament or the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament, don't we? That a lot of times I hear these sermons that kind of paint... Jesus as a hippie and he's kind of out there and he's just like peace man you know and I don't think that's what Jesus was ever all about I had um when I used to work for a a Lutheran company and um, one of the guys I worked with used to be a Lutheran pastor in the Midwest and he was part of the ELCA the Evangelical Lutheran Church of America which is the more liberal wing of the Lutheran denomination And he said, and we were talking about this vote that was coming up shortly in the ELCA about same-sex unions. And that the church, there was this, you know, there's this discussion as to whether the pastors of the church should be allowed to marry uh, same-sex couples and also to be homosexual themselves. And it was this big big to-do back uh, in August of 2005, I think it was. And so he was talking to me and he says, he says, Justin, you know, when I was a pastor, I performed... Hundreds of same-sex unions. And I was like, oh, really? He said, for me, the issue is that these two people love each other. And if they love each other and you try to separate that, well, you're separating Jesus. And I thought to myself, that is the biggest bogus bull I've ever heard in my life. (laughs) I mean, what are they teaching these people in seminary? That the reality of it is that Jesus is God and that God is not some hippie you know, I think we, we bring the 60s and the 70s with our theology a little bit and bring the Woodstock into the, in the, into the book of John. And that's not how Jesus was. Sure, he keeps the prostitute from being stoned, but what does he say to her? Go and sin no more. Sure, he heals the blind man from, from his blindness, but what does he say? Stop sinning. The reality is is that Jesus' call to holiness has been the same throughout Scripture. There is no discrepancy between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And that Jesus is is as much a warrior as he is a healer. We see these images in Revelation that will just make the, the hairs on the back of your neck stand up. Because Jesus is coming with a vengeance. He is making war with these cities. And here in Joshua, he's giving war plans to overcome Jericho. And let's be honest, the the campaign that Joshua is about to embark on in Canaan is one of the bloodiest, gruesomest campaigns ever. That he is going to, basically, he's going to institute genocide and wipe out all of the people in Canaan. Why? Because all these people are sinful. All of these people bring their culture, bring their idol worshiping, bring all of these things. And God wants to make sure that Israel has no place with that. He is cleaning out Canaan so that the people of God can live in holiness. And so he is coming with a vengeance. And he says, here's what's going to happen. And when we read the story of Jericho and how, how Joshua and his men killed everyone, men, women, children, goats, cows, sheep, it is gruesome. It's hard to grasp. It's a tough thing to wrestle with, how this God who is so loving could institute something so violent. But the reality of it it is, is that God has always been violent towards sin. The difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament is that in the New Testament, he brings it on himself. He takes on the sins of the world on himself and dies on the cross for our sins. He hates sin. He always has. He always will. But this is how he deals with it. He brings it on himself so that people can live. So here he is, Jesus is standing before Joshua, revealing himself to Joshua in this powerful way, giving him a sense of hope, giving him assurance that he's there, giving him war plans, that it's all about me, Joshua. I'm going to take care of this, Joshua. Don't worry, just do what I say. And next week we'll look at what happens when the people of God do not do what what God says and the, the repercussions of that. But I think the reality of this message and the application of this message is this, is that God wants to meet all of us. All of us are like Joshua. We're all wandering in this promised land, but yet we all still have our battles. We have, even if we become Christians, we will still fight for the rest of our lives with different things. We battle with our spouses. We battle with our children. We battle with our jobs. We battle with our coworkers. We battle with our neighbors. We battle with sin. We battle with sickness. We battle with hurts and sufferings. We battle with emotional sicknesses. We battle with everything. But the Lord stands before Joshua, before his battling campaign. And he says, I'm with you. And he wants to stand before each and every one of us. Before we battle and say, I'm with you, do it my way. How in the world will we know what the Lord is speaking to us unless we get time to spend with the Lord? How in the world will we know how to defeat this battle, how to win in this area of life if we're not listening to the master and commander? How is that possible? You know, I think for me, one of the temptations I've noticed in my own life here in the last four weeks is that it's easy for me to think, to substitute ministry with spending time with the Lord. And I I don't know if you all have experienced that, but it's like, well, I, I preached on Sunday, I sent out some devotionals, all right, my... My, my time with the Lord is over. But notice the difference with Joshua. There was time for his mission, and there was time for spending the Lord. What did Jesus do? He often got away from the crowds to spend time with the Lord. There is a difference between doing the work of God and spending time with the Lord. And I might I may suggest that spending time with the Lord is the priority before trying to do the work of God. Oftentimes in our lives, we we, um, we think that the Lord always answers us, always is telling us what to do because it applies to practical wisdom. In other words, God gave us minds, God gave us desires. If we just do the things that make sense, well, it'll all work out, and that's the Lord's will. Well, I've seen a lot of people apply that in ways, and it has not worked out that way at all. In fact, we see a couple of stories. First, uh, in Samuel, anointing David is one of them. Joshua and his campaign into Jericho is another one, where what God tells him to do is not practical wisdom there is a difference between what god is thinking and what man might think and we have to align ourselves to what god is thinking and the only way to do that is to spend time with the lord and listen to him and pray and hear his voice because he wants to speak to each of us it's not like he's hiding in fact we have the holy spirit don't we know that our bodies are the temples of the living god who dwells within us we, we, have, we have access to God 24-7. We don't have to wait for him to show up. We just have to listen. We have to say, you know what, God? I'm going to listen because you're obviously speaking to me. I just haven't been listening. The reality of it is, is that he wants to meet with every one of us. He loves us. He loves each and every one of us. Each and every one of us have a place in his kingdom. Each and every one of us are going to go through battles. And he wants us to overcome. He wants us to do the will of God. We can only find out what our master is thinking, what our master wants from us, by spending time with the Lord. Hi, this is Justin Hibbert, worship pastor at New Hope Chapel. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We hope it was a blessing and an encouragement to you. Our church, New Hope Chapel, is located in Arnold, Maryland, just outside of Annapolis. So if you're ever in the area, please stop by and visit us. We'd love to have you. You can find out more information about our church at newhopechapel.org. God bless.